Hello, and welcome back to Latin 3 from the Church of St. Agnes. Today we will be exploring the grammar in Unit 33. Now, Unit 33 is a rather short uh, lesson, and there's nothing uh, very complicated about it. If you turn to page 293 in the Collins book, we'll take a look. The first thing that Collins presents is the irregular verb ferro, ferro fere tuli latus, which means to bring, carry, bear, and so on. Now, ferro itself has a few irregular uh, qualities, and you see mostly they occur in the present. Take a look at the present active and passive there, ferro, feres, feret, ferimus, feretis, ferrant. What's happened there, as you can see, is the I is dropped out in the second and third person singular. Ferro, it would have been feris, ferret, but it's ferro, feris, ferret, ferimus, ferretis, ferrant. In the passive, it's basically regular, ferror, feris, ferretur, ferimur, ferimini, feruntur, the alternate ferre in the second person singular. The imperative, you already know, remember the little jingle, duke, deke, foc, and fair should have had an e, but it's not there. So instead of ferre, it's just fair. And the plural, ferte, no i, not ferite, but ferte. Now, this is a very important verb, not, not even so much for it in its root sense, but as you will see in the vocabulary, there are many, many, many compounds uh, ver uh, that are formed from the uh, root verb ferro, and we'll see that in the vocabulary. But for now, know this irregular present indicative and imperative. The rest of the verb is entirely uh, regular, and you can find it again in the uh, morphology section in the back of your book, the entire conjugation. Now, our second point of grammar in this chapter is the so-called ablative of time, when, or within which. Now, in classical Latin, the ablative case uh, with a word uh, having to do with time will occur by itself without a preposition to show the ablative of time, when, or within which. In ecclesiastical and later Latin, you will see the preposition in often with an ablative, or you might see it also without the in. Either way, in uh, ecclesiastical Latin. So take a look at that practice sentence there at the bottom of the page. In illo tempore, Jesus in Galilea predicabat. At that time, within that period of time, either way, Jesus was preaching in Galilee. Now, it could be illo tempore by itself, or in illo tempore. In the Gospels, we often see the in, uh, and you'll see that uh, preposition. In classical Latin, as I say, the ablative of time when or within which does not uh, come with a preposition or is not preceded by a preposition. Either way, I don't think it will be a difficult thing for you to see uh, when it occurs. A time expression in the ablative, either within or, or without it, and showing time when or within which. 
Now on the next page, 294, in section 165, you see another time expression. And this is the accusative of extent of time or space. Uh, the accusative of a word denoting the measurement of time or space may be used to indicate extent of time or space without a preposition, okay? So this is called the accusative of extent of time. And take a look at the example. Paulus mansit ibi dies paucos. Paul remained or stayed there. Dies paucos, notice accusative, without a preposition, for a few days. That shows the extent of time. So you will see that very often in Latin. And then one thing in uh, section 166, which is peculiar to later Latin and ecclesiastical Latin, the ablative case of a word de denoting measurement of time may be used, instead, uh, used to indicate duration of time. Now, we don't see this in classical Latin, but notice here in the example, quinque diebus mulier fuerat infirma, the main sentence, the woman had been sick or infirm, quinque diebus. Notice that's in the ablative, and here it's expressing duration of time. We'd normally expect an accusative of extent of time, quinque dies. But um, in, in later Latin, we will see the ablative also. So here, uh, the woman uh, had been sick for five days. Uh, you'll say, well, how do you know the difference between the ablative of duration of time and the ablative of time within which? Well, it has to, you have to go by context. It wouldn't make much sense here to say the woman had been sick within five days um, or at five days, on the fifth day or something like that. No, uh, this is the, shows the duration. So be careful, uh, be aware of these time expressions. They're not difficult, uh, and they'll appear uh, very often in Latin, uh, in the gospel particularly. Uh, the gospel writers are fond of saying in illo tempore or illo tempore. At that time, Jesus was um, crossing into Galilee or some such thing. Now, that's the extent of the new grammar that Collins uh, pre uh, presents in Unit 33. He does include in Section 167 a summary of conditional clauses. So we'll quickly summarize conditional clauses. We've uh, talked about them throughout the course of, uh, of uh, this year. And um, there are really three categories or three types of conditions in Latin. The simple, the future, and the contrary to fact, or what Collins calls contrafactual. Now, the simple conditions can be in the present or past indicative in any tense, and they express an idea that just is conditional. Nothing else is implied. So uh, you see examples down there. See Abit, if he leaves. See Abibat, if he was leaving. See Abit, if he left. See Abiyerat, if he had left, and so on. Uh, these are simple conditions, and there's no problem whatsoever in translating them when you encounter them. The second category of conditions in Latin are the future conditions. The future conditions in Latin are of two sorts or two kinds, the more vivid and the less vivid. And that, of course, the, the name really uh, signifies what's going on here. 
the future more vivid, as you will suspect and as you actually know, will take future indicative in both clauses. And it's the indicative because it's more vivid, it's, it's more firm. Whereas as we move more into the realm of possibility or doubt or uncertainty, we use the subjunctive in the future less vivid. So the future more vivid will have a future indicative in each clause or often a future perfect indicative in the protasis or the C clause, followed up by a future. We've seen that many, many times now uh, in the course of our lessons. The future less vivid we sometimes call the should-would condition because that's how we should translate it. And that requires a present subjunctive, uh, almost always a present subjunctive, in uh, each clause. Um, so if you look at the examples on the bottom of page 294 and then 295, nisi vicinum tuum diligis or unless you love your neighbor. We would translate it in the present, but technically, it's, technically it says, unless you will have love, dilexeris. Uh, um, and then if you take a look, uh, and that should actually be diligis with an E there uh, for the future in the uh, indicative. If you take a look at the future less vivid, you have uh, present subjunctive in the protasis and in the apotasis, even though Collins doesn't show you that. Ceum roges. If you should ask him, he would help you. That's how we would translate it. Two present subjunctives, one in each clause. And then we have the what Collins calls the contrafactual. I like to call the contrary to fact conditions. They are of two kinds, the present and the past. Present contrary to fact conditions employ the imperfect subjunctive in both clauses. And they translate, if they were doing this, they would be in trouble, but they're not doing it, right? That's why it's contrafactual or contrary to fact, if they were doing this. And the past uses, the past contrary to fact condition uses two pluperfect subjunctives in, in the clauses. If, see Hochfeld, she said, if they had done this, they would have been in trouble, right? So con contrary to fact or contrafactual conditions Two subjunctives in the present contrary to fact, imperfect in each clause, uh, con uh, past contrary to fact, pluperfect in each clause. Now, there is such a thing, although Collins doesn't really mention it, although he has presented sentences like it, there are mixed conditions in which you may see uh, the protasis of one sort of condition and the apotasis of another. That Now that you know the formulas for the conditions, the uh, standard formulas, you won't have any trouble in translating those. So that is the entire lesson that uh, Colin gives us, Collins gives us in Unit 33. Um, and uh, it's, uh, there's nothing, barely anything new, uh, these uh, time expressions in Latin and uh, the irregular verb. But I want to emphasize that irregular verb, ferro. Uh, take a look on page 295 at the vocabulary in the right-hand column down near the end. 
There you have the verb ferro ferre tulilatus. That's the base verb. But I want you to take a look at what follows in this on this page and, and the one following, because these are just some of the compounded verbs that are formed with the verb ferro. So that's why it's such an important verb. And the compounded verbs are basically conjugated like the, the standard verb, uh, but when they are compounded, they sometimes carry a different meaning. So let's take a look. We have au ferro, to take away from ab ferro, really. Um, we have con ferro, to accompany, uh, also to grant, we say confer, right? Um, confere se means to take oneself or betake oneself, go somewhere, right? Then we have de ferro, from ferro and de, to uh, bring or offer, bring down, bring offer. A ferro, from X or A plus ferro, to bring out, to lift up. In ferro, to bring in. O ferro, from ob ferro, to offer. Per ferro, to carry through, literally to carry up per ferro, right? Pro ferro, to bring forth. Re ferro, to bring back again, right? That's the word we get, refer. So these are just some, and there are indeed more compounded verbs from the verb ferro. That's why it's such an important verb. Um, and once you know the root, you can usually figure out, even if you're not sure of the compounded verb in the vocabulary. Okay. Well, as I say, that basically covers this unit. Uh, it's a very short unit. Uh, and um, one that doesn't really uh, present much difficulty, only a couple new minor things to learn. Um, so we'll emphasize the verb ferro and uh, the compounds that, that, that accompany it, um, and we will turn to our homework exercises, and uh, I'll let you know what, we, what I would like you to do for uh, our homework. Uh, so if you look on page 298 and following, get your pencils ready. Here goes uh, with the numbers that you should do for our, for our homework. Ready? Number one, number two, number three, number five, seven, 10, 12, 16, 20, 22, 25, 26, 28, 33, 34, 38, 39, 42, 43, and 44. One more time. 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 10, 12, 16, 20, 22, 25, 26, 28, 33, 34, 38, 39, 42, 43, and 44. Okay, those are for your exercises. Now, under the readings, let's do reading number one, the Asperges May, which is part from a psalm, and you'll know it from the sprinkling rite. And then number three, Peter's Discourse in Caesarea, part two, which is a continuation from what we did in unit 32. So we'll do those two, and we will skip the uh, hymn Salutus Humanae by St. Ambrose, of course, you can 
uh, always feel free to do that and any of the other practice sentences that you would like to do. Well, that really wraps up our Unit 33. Quite simple, quite compact, not much new. I think you'll follow that very easily. And um, concentrate uh, very uh, uh, carefully on your exercise sentences. Uh, I've picked out the ones I think that are very illustrative of the things that we want to review and do. And as you'll see, almost all of them are uh, taken directly from Scripture. And so you're reading real Latin. Um, that does it for today. Uh, I will be back with you to, in a few days to go over uh, this homework assignment. And until then... I wish all the best for you. Have a wonderful day. And remember, again, if you have any questions whatsoever about this lesson, any of these sentences, or anything about Latin, feel free to drop me an email at may at stoloff.edu. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.